You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and um, welcome to this special episode of the Renew Economy podcast series. We're at the All Energy event in Melbourne. Um, there's a huge crowd of people out there, unbelievable amount of exhibitors and streams of conversations going on, both in the formal and informal sense. So we thought we'd take this opportunity to do a, uh, a live broadcast here. The um, Energy Insiders and Solar Insiders and the Driven podcast, which is the new edition from our electric vehicle website, have been incredibly popular. It's more than 300,000 downloads since we started this um, last year, which is pretty amazing when you think that we're actually just sort of mostly talking about wonky stuff about energy and the solar industry and um, throwing our hands up in the air sort of figuratively, figuratively and literally about um, the nature of Australian politics. And um, the technology is exciting, but geez, we uh, ran up against a few barriers um, on the way through. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to introduce our panel and we're going to have, have, some, um, have a bit of a chat about some of the major events and um, hopefully get some interaction from the audience here and, and get some questions. So look, first of all, I'd just like to introduce um, David Leach, um, my co-host on the Energy Insiders podcast. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Giles. And uh, it's great to be here in Melbourne, which has been the historic centre of most things that happen in electricity and gas. Uh, uh, and uh, talking about our favourite topics. Absolutely, fantastic. And um, the other co-host, Nigel Morris, uh, co-host on the Solar Insiders program. Nigel, I'm glad to make it. Glad to see you made out of the first networking event alive and in one piece. Look, as I, I said to you, it's all about the networking, right? And I, I did see you networking the pants off the place last night as well, Giles. Well, I think I think I asked you to rephrase that actually. <laughs> <laughs> But, no, no, um, no, great show. I was there. Um, but um, I think I might have left a bit earlier than you. Look, we've also got two very special guests, um, Simon Corbell, the former ACT um, Climate and Energy Minister, and now the Victorian Renewable Energy um, Advocate. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Giles. Delighted to be here. Yeah, look, it's, um, it should be a good conversation. And Glenn Morelli, the um, CEO of um, Tindo Solar, but um, there's a parent company on above that, and I've just forgotten it. It's just leaked out of my name. Cool and Cozy. So Cool and Cozy bought Tindo Solar in South Australia last year, and Tindo is the only manufacturer of um, solar modules in Australia. Is Great. that the case? Yes. Still the case. Look, I thought I'd get on to the started off with something about the politics. And look, people have often asked me about what is going on in politics, why this opposition to this energy transition, and I often struggle to answer. Simon. Can you shed any light on it? You've worked, you've been, a, you've been a state and territory minister, you've worked in COAG Energy Council. What's going on? Well, perhaps my answer is going to be a little bit philosophical, Giles, but I think this is where I'm at. So I, I think the issue is this is disruption. So this is disruption, as Finkel described it, you know, disruption in our energy markets, disruption driven by new technology. And when you have this disruption, Intellectually and psychologically, I think some people just really struggle with that new paradigm and how it would work. They can't imagine that future, they can't see that future, and so they revert to what they know. And I think fundamentally, um, that's what's happening in terms of our politics. We have this rump that find it very difficult, and perhaps it truly is because they are conservative, largely, 
they can't imagine this future, they can't imagine what it looks like, how it's going to work, what, even what the economics tell them it's going to look like. Uh, and so they revert to what they do know because it's been there for so long. So my sense is it's, it's a very much uh, a human reaction, uh, a flawed human reaction, but a human reaction to change and disruption in a way that we perhaps really haven't seen in this sector for over a, over a century. Mm. So I think it is quite a fundamental problem with how our humanity, or some, for some of us, how our humanity responds to disruption and change. That's a little bit philosophical. No, that's but that, okay. But that's where I've got to on it, because I can't, I can't find any other explanation otherwise. Joel, I, I, I'd, I'd jump in. Uh, you know, if you... Uh, I love my detective novels, uh, frankly, and there's a, one of the basic laws in them is, is follow the money uh, in, if you want to find who done it. And in Australia, as in the United States, as in China, there are tremendous vested interests in the existing industry. I mean, coal is likely to surpass iron ore to become our number one export dollar earner. I don't say that in a good or bad way, I just say it as a fact. Uh, coal mining employs uh, thousands and thousands of people in Australia and probably kills quite a few people as well. And there are a lot of dollars involved in that industry. A lot of people, there's been tremendous investment in the existing thermal generation system. There's tremendous investment in the wires and poles, so the system that's threatened to a greater or lesser extent by behind the meter investment. And so that, there's a lot of dollars that want to resist change. Simon, I mean, we talk about the energy transition. I mean, are we seeing here the last hurrah, or are they going to, get, are we, are they going to be swept away by technology, do you think? Or do you think they've really got their foot stepped down and they're going to have the ability to block it? Well, I think they're going to try very hard to slow it down as much as they can. I mean, someone like Angus Taylor's no dummy. He's well-educated. He understands economics. He understands markets. He's worked in those uh, institutions. Uh, but they are going to... They are smart and dangerous mm. because they are going to try and slow this transition down as much as they can. They are as I think Malcolm Turnbull's son pointed out, are going to do everything they can to uh, extract the last piece of value uh, from assets that otherwise are going to end up being stranded and, and worthless. So we are going to see, as David says, that there is that, and I don't disagree with that analysis either, there is that vested interest element in politics mm. as well. And they are, they are definitely going to try and, try and uh, slow it down yeah. as much as they can. And it could be quite retrograde and it could be um, uh, quite harmful, uh, at least in the short term. Glenn, you live in an interesting state. Um, you had a Labor government in there for nigh on 20 years with very ambitious renewable energy targets. You now have a Conservative um, government in there. They don't... And, and according to the AEMO um, predictions and the integrated system plan and what have you, South Australia is headed inevitably to 70% share of renewables by 2021. Uh, the equivalent of 100% renewables by 2025. Um, they don't seem to be doing anything to stop it. Is that because you guys have already got rid of your last coal-fired power station? <laughs> yeah, it could be part of the reason. We certainly need power, like every state. Um, but the, the new government, the Liberal government, have been um, proactive, recently introduced a uh, battery subsidy into South Australia, um, up to $6,000 per household. Yes, I'd like to get and talk about that one a bit later, actually, but yeah. um, yes. Yeah, so there's certainly a lot of activity. The market's hot. Um, 
particularly for battery, but also PV in but, general. But they well. haven't sort of come in and just said, okay, let's stop this. No. Because no. they can't. No. No. Yeah. Well, I it's think it's more than that, just that they can't. It's the fact that it's electorally popular yep. to support renewables. Uh, we, we are, we I are mean, told we that. Saw, we saw that in, South in the last South Australian election. Yes, Labor lost, but the, the swing against Labor was very small, uh, and it was really a factor of the redistribution uh, by the State Electoral Commission that meant that Labor couldn't do what it did in the last election and sandbag sufficient seats just to, just to stop the swing against it for what was a very long-term uh, incumbent government. Mm. Uh, and we've seen the same, uh, obviously, from my own home jurisdiction in the ACT. Uh, we had the Liberal Party come on board and support 100% renewables, having opposed it for nearly a decade. Um, we, we, and he, even here in Victoria, whilst there is opposition to the VRET, um, there is a recognition on the part of the state opposition that they still need a policy that talks about renewable energy development. So even though they're opposed to the target per se, in the same way that the South Australian Liberals were, they are still talking about the need for programs that support mm. uptake of renewables and support local supply chains. So. It's electorally dangerous not to be supporting renewables now, so, I, mean, I suggest. You, this, this point really, really intrigues me because we see conservative governments um, getting behind. They realise how important it is at, 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 a, at state election time. And we, we've saw, you know, what was a surprising swing in South Australia towards the support of batteries when previously they hadn't been supporting the notion of batteries. Where's the disconnect between what we see the states, the state's ability to actually realise that there is political mileage in this and, and that it is a popular issue and you, every poll shows massive community support for renewables, yet at the federal level, we're surrounded by idiots. <laughs> what, 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 where is the disconnect? What is it that, that stops federal politicians from, from accepting this reality that we see, even at the state level, so, so what, what, why, why can't they get it? I think it's because they operate in a realm that is too removed from the day-to-day -day of people's lived experiences and aspirations. Right. So I think state governments have to be really focused at practical on-the-ground issues. And, and state governments are, you know, if something goes wrong in terms of a climate change-related event, you know, serious fire, flood, storm, other disaster, who's, who's in the gun? It's not the federal government, it's the state government. Right. So you've got to be seen to be uh, addressing those issues, responding to those issues, uh, but also state level uh, government and local governments, city governments for this matter, are also really focused on, well, how do I leverage these investment opportunities for jobs and local supply chain augmentation in my electorate? in my community. So they are closer to those communities and they have to be demonstrating that they are delivering for those communities. Uh, and that's something that, that you don't have to do so much at the federal level. You know, it's all macro, big picture, international agreements. Uh, and they get so caught up in that that they're not actually talking about, well, how can a really practical economic and energy policy focused on supporting renewable energy growth deliver jobs and investment into local communities? Just give you one very quick taste for what that looks like. Um, Wilson Transformers in Wodonga. I went up there a couple of, uh, about a month or so ago now. They launched this new product where they're partnering with SMA. Um, 
for an inverter transformer product brought together. The bloke who runs the Wilson uh, factory up there said to me, he said, Simon, for the first time in 20 years that I've worked in this industry, I've seen a state government program that's actually supporting growth and development in my industry. And that was the VRET local, you know, reverse auction local content requirements where wind and solar developers saying, we'll buy your transformers from you because you're employing local people in, in Victoria and you're putting on trainees and apprentices as part of that as well. So we can put all of that in our proposal to the state government. You don't see that happening at a federal level. So I think th that's at least in part the reason for the disconnect. David, what's the worst thing that this federal government can do on policy? I mean, is it, is, it, is it sufficient that they don't do anything? Or do you fear that they might just do something like really, really stupid? I just uh, wanted to start out by saying, and I forgot to mention this on previous occasions, we, sh we should give a lot of credit to Simon. Uh, he, he kept the ACT government in the darkest days of the renewable e industry. He, he stood up for the state's rights and, and for renewable energy. And, uh, it's probably a coincidence that he's now in Victoria, and Victoria's got one of the lot more progressive policies. But uh, you know, I think everyone in the room should understand what a, what a great job he's actually done yeah. uh, for the industry. <laughs> uh, as far as the worst thing that uh, the federal government can do, uh, I would point to the fact that there's an election due within about six or seven months, and so I think a lot of people have been focused to some extent on the ACCC. I have a deep objection to the ACCC sticking its nose into policy. That's not what its job is. Its job is to ensure that the market operates efficiently. You know, so I'm a great believer in markets and that if markets are run properly with sufficient competition, they will deliver good outcomes for consumers. Uh, 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 good outcomes doesn't always mean that prices are low all the time. Prices have to go up sometimes in order to provide the investment signal. That's not a sign of a market working badly. It's actually a sign of a market working well. A market works badly when there's no trading and no liquidity. So the Rod Sims at the ACCC's come along with a whole lot of policy prescriptions, one of which uh, could be taken as providing uh, federal government support uh, for perhaps coal-fired generation at $40 a megawatt hour. I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, if he comes along and if that could be done, it, w it wouldn't be too good for anyone else. I just personally don't think there's enough time uh, between now and the next election to develop such a policy and to do it in any way that, I mean, even if you look at the Great Barrier Reef, you've still got to have, you can't do that twice, probably. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and the other thing that, of course, they could talk about is withdrawing from the Paris Accord. Uh, I'm not, that's a very slow and withdrawal. I just don't think that, that in reality is more talk than action. One of the main um, recommendations of the ACCC was the closure by 2021, if not immediately, of the small-scale renewable energy um, scheme. Um, Glenn and Nigel, um, is there great fear in the market about that? And um, how much of a problem would that be if it did happen? Glenn, go first. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was great fear. Uh, it would certainly impact uh, the expense to consumers to purchase solar, and, and quite significantly. Um, that fear seems to have passed at the moment. It's not at its peak. Um, but I think it would be, you know, solar stands up on its own two feet now. And it, you know, it's a, it's a compelling proposition whether there is small-scale certificates or otherwise. 
Um, but to pull it carte blanche at an instant would, would have huge ramifications in the industry. Mm. Employment um, for, for one, and uh, you'd see a lot of businesses fail very quickly. So mm. I don't think that's the right attack at all. Mm. They want to disrupt the disruption. Yes. Don't they? <laughs> that's, the, that's the only reason you could do for it because, you know, the SRES scheme since it came in has actually been one of the most effective and elegant schemes. It's, it, it's, it's self-adjusting, it goes down over time, uh, it, it, it's, 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 um, uh, uh, it doesn't have a, a cost to the government per se, you know, it's not a budget item. Um, so it's been a wonderful, wonderful scheme that is adjusting over time, uh, roughly in line with the technology costs. It's relatively simple to uh, administer. Um, and, you know, th the only reason that you would take an elegant, well-proven, self-adjusting scheme away is to be vindictive. Um, there, there's no other real reason to do it because it doesn't have any net benefit to government. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I never say never, and, and I'm, with, I'm with Glenn, because there are two things that it would do if they did take it away. Uh, one is it just demolishes faith uh, both in, in the investment community who are making investment decisions, whether it's companies like uh, the company I work for who are wanting to invest in new technology or overseas companies wanting to come to Australia, it just blows that all out of the water and creates more uncertainty. So, so that's, a, that's a very, very serious effect. And of course, the other thing that we know and that we have seen over time is that consumers do listen to what these signals are saying to them. And if the government says solar is evil, solar will eat your baby, so we're going to take this rebate away, then consumers start to question it. And they say, oh, well, is solar the right thing to do? Should I, should I maybe reconsider this decision? And it just creates uncertainty right across the board. I think to add to that, though, I think any attempt to get rid of the SRS would is electoral poison. Yes. And I can't, I can't see how all of these marginal seat holders in federal electorates in Queensland, let alone anywhere else, mm -hmm. are going to be able to justify taking away a policy of taking away the SRS. Mm -hmm. But... But aside from that, it is, it is reasonable for public policymakers to think about whether or not there should continue to be subsidy for any technology that has reduced in price in the, in the way that rooftop solar has. But, I, but I would argue, but I would argue, just sorry to finish my point, David, um, that um, it, it still provides a very important mechanism both to send that signal about where we want to go in terms of our energy future, but more importantly, it also opens up more households to other forms of technology adoption, particularly in storage. And that's, that, so it's still got a really critical role to play in facilitating the pathway towards more households towards, moving towards distributed storage as well. So, Sorry. Some, some, some years ago, the Grattan, report wrote, uh, Grattan Institute wrote a report that said it must never be repeated about rooftop solar and the subsidies. I, I personally think that was one of the more stupid reports that institutions ever issued. <laughs> Because I think anyone who looks at the rooftop industry in Australia and how well it's done around the world and how competitive our installation costs are on a global basis would have to give the industry a huge tick. 
I do take issue with Simon. It's not a subsidy. As Nigel said, it's a payment by one group of consumers to another group of consumers, which is not technically what a subsidy is, in my opinion. It's a cross-subsidy. It's a wealth transfer from one, <laughs> from, from one group of... Uh, uh, and the point is, it's increasingly the people that have got solar, as they're growing towards a majority on their roof, that are subsidising... or <laughs> I use the word. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the people who haven't got sol solar. And that's a relatively common... Uh, model. If when we look at land development in sure. Australia, we don't expect people putting their house on that land to pay all of the upfront costs uh, initially. We expect that the people who've already got houses, the government, to help to get the thing going and then eventually uh, when the suburbs established, those people will contribute to the next suburb. I, I think you could see the SREC uh, thing in the same light. Glenn, just give us a bit of an overview about the state of the um, solar industry then, particularly in South Australia where I think it's sort of running hot at the moment. I mean, surely there's got to be a really strong case to rebrand your company, Fair Income Solar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hadn't thought about that, but could well be. Um, just, Sam, trademark that right now, please. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in South Australia at the moment, as I said earlier, the market's um, very buoyant. Um, there's an enormous amount of uh, interest around battery storage um, with the, the release of the subsidy which starts later in October, about uh, 18th of October. Um, it's very generous and, and that in itself is going to probably drive a lot more PV sales as well. Did you say 18th of October? Yeah. What are you doing here? You <laughs> you've got work to do. <laughs> That's no time. That's really coming fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty exciting development. Um, someone actually raised a concern to me um, over drinks, over networking last night, about how that might operate and some of the details of it. You know, like you might have a lot of people out there with you know, very small systems wanting to put a really big battery into was, their was household. Was that whilst you had your pants on or off? Well, thank you very much. <laughs> this is a family program. <laughs> um, edit that one out. It's, I think it's going to create a bit of a uh, buying frenzy for a little while. Um, you know, we've had people approach us, what's the biggest battery I can get? And the first question we ask is, well, what size solar do you have? And it doesn't seem to be top of mind. Or, oh, it doesn't matter, I just want a big battery. Um, so there will be people in the market that will take advantage of that, and, and hence there will be um, a lot of systems installed that aren't fit for purpose, won't create the end result the client's looking for, and all the government. Um, so there will, there, will, there will be some problems, no mm. doubt. Simon, there's a scheme going in Victoria too. Will there be measures, um, you know, is there some thinking about that, about how to control that? Yeah, there will be a lot of work put into consumer protection and consumer information as part of, part of these programs, both for the solar panel uh, rebate and low interest loan mechanism, as well as for the batteries. Mm. Um, but I think uh, th those are things that can be managed. And Solar Victoria is the nascent vehicle that's being established here in Victoria to to drive that and if you look at the content that they're making available um, there's a very strong emphasis both on education around sizing uh, but also around consumer protection the types of install installers and products to be thinking about so I think we I think that shows a maturity and learning some lessons from the the gold rush days of the premium fit schemes and what happened with those uh, and a determination not to make those mistakes again mm. to address what is actually a very legitimate problem here in Victoria, which is the level of PV uptake, which is quite low compared to other jurisdictions, uh, and which shouldn't, shouldn't be that low, particularly when you've got quite high retail prices. Yeah. 
David, we had an interesting conversation with Greg Jarvis from Origin Energy on um, Energy Insiders earlier on this week, and um, we were t talking mostly about the wholesale market. And there was one little quick, one little um, comment at the end, which was actually sort of highlighted by one of our readers saying, "Oh, and um, let, let's not forget distributed energy. You know, behind the meter storage, what's happening in the household. This whole conference is basically about behind the meter storage, about distributed energy." Um, and so much of what we hear talked about in the forums is about that. Do you still think that the big utilities have their business models set on the wholesale end of the market and are still ignoring to their peril what's happening in households and businesses? I don't think they're ignoring it, but it's one, it's one thing uh, to analyse something and it's another thing to work out where your edge is going to be in that. Um, uh, as I said before, Australia's rooftop uh, or behind the metre market is astonishing in its scale in Australia relative to what anyone else has done around the world, five, six gigawatts and projected to grow. As Simon says, that opens up uh, a tremendous opportunity to eventually add in storage and there has to be no doubt that household batteries en masse uh, uh, could do an awful lot of time shifting of load in a much more efficient way, in my opinion, than having utility-scale batteries doing the same thing with all the line losses involved. And uh, we're already seeing, as anyone who's wandered around the floor, some wonderful examples of how the technology's advanced in the past uh, few years. Uh, I personally was very taken, and no offence to anyone else, by, say, the Redback red cabinet, uh, which looks uh, very pretty, very neat, in, in a unit that anyone with a detached house could sort of stick in. So I think that the technology and the uh, education level in the industry, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not really a solar person, has advanced to the level now and, the, and that we understand hybrid uh, inverters and things like that in a way that probably we didn't a couple of years ago. Uh, so that we're, we're ready for the next wave and it can help to make the grids much more resilient. Uh, we, we, we heard uh, from the energy Kerry shot talking about Australia's thin transmission lines and to an extent that's true. I believe there'll always be a big place for a transmission backbone. You know, my model is like computers. You have little local distributed resilient grids backed up by strong regional interflows coming over fast DC lines. I mean, we're a million miles away from that at the moment, but our rooftop solar uh, business uh, is an essential and important building block. We need to back it up with more metre technology and then we are seeing efforts as well for the, uh, on the regulatory side of things from the AEMC uh, and the AMO to try and naturally get more control. For anyone who's been around as long as I, this just so resembles the microcomputer uh, sort of thing where everyone would take their PC into work and have a lot of fun for a few years. And eventually the guys uh, in management said, uh, you know, F you, we're getting, taking it all back again. And now when you walk in, you've got a PC on your desk, but basically you can use Excel and a word processor. Uh, and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel, you're, I mean, we've kind of moved into the next phase of the transition behind the meter, haven't we, with, with rooftop solar? I mean, your business that you represent now, Solar Analytics, is about sort of analysing the data, making sure people have not just got solar PV systems and battery storage, they can actually see what they're doing, they know that they're working. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to move in between all that sort of internet, all the, all the link, the virtual power plants, the internet, the analytics. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be the unsung nature of what's happening here. I think it is actually, and, and, and you know, I, I really take David's point, when you walk around this hall uh, and you look at all the tech that's out there, not just ours, but, but all the tech, what we're seeing, what, 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 what's out just on the other side of that barrier is the solution to the problem, right? Mm. I, I did an interview with, with a journalist just half an hour ago 
who was very interested in the issue that consumers are being restricted from putting large PV systems on the grid. And, and, and the journalist said to me, why would they do that? Why would, why would a consumer who was willing to spend ten dollars or $20,000, why would the network say that they can't do that if they want to, if they're willing to spend the money? Uh, and of course, there are some local issues around voltage rise and various other things, but all the technological solutions are just out there, just the other side of this wall. Every, every, bit of, every company that's out there has a piece of that puzzle. And the only thing that is stopping it's hap it happening is, is the point uh, that Simon was making earlier on, is this, this fear of us, of them losing what they've had for so long. And it, it's the real travesty to me because, you know, a sledgehammer approach has been taken uh, to network connections for solar owners. You know, you can, you can walk down to, a, to any hardware store or, or appliance store and buy a whopping great big load and the retailer and the network company will say, thank you very much, that's great. Uh, and you will have no barrier to connection of those great big huge loads at all. But as soon as you try to put power back the other way, it's suddenly a problem. What a crock of shit. There are technical <laughs> solutions out there for all of these problems, and the only thing that is stopping beep, it is beep, people. Beep. Penalty beep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, actually, actually, not everyone with a it load. It irks me. It really irks me. It's a, it's, <laughs> I can it's, see. I can tell. I can tell. I, 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 I'm getting the vibe. Um, but... Um, um, it's not the, uh, there are some loans which are being impeded at the moment, and this is one that interests you, and that's about for, for fast-charging electric vehicle stations. Yep. Um, there's a big battle going on about how much they can actually sort of put on and where they can put on, how much infrastructure they need to put with it, and then what they're going to be charged. Yep. So the network's actually coming up with demand charges. Yep. So, um, you know, that might be okay for a factory, and you know what time it's going to operate, and you can actually count for that. But for, yep. for fast charging, no one knows what time of day people are going to turn up. And, and start charging. So there's an interesting battle to, to get on there. Hey, listen, guys, has anyone got any questions to ask? Um, we'd love to have some feedback from the audience. Put your hand up if you do. Otherwise, I'm going to have to do fantastic. Uh, questions. And look, while, we're having, while the microphone's going there, I just want to do a bit of a shout out to the sponsors who've been right with us right from the start. Um, Solaray Energy and Watt Watches for Energy Insiders, um, Solar Analytics, and more recently, PV Cell for uh, Solar Insiders. Really um, appreciate their support, um, fantastic. And also Zero Mode, um, who've come in to sponsor the podcast on the Driven website. So um, that's fantastic. And while we're in a commercial fr um, frame of mind, there's, um, there's actually some Solar Insider t-shirts, um, if you could bear carrying around a picture of Nigel and me on your, uh, on your, on your chest. Um, they're out for sale. Um, <laughs> um, and, um, and Renew Economy has the uh, Solar is the Future t-shirt, not that we're sort of, you know, betting on one technology or anything, but um, we've got it in white and in black, so uh, they're available. But um, Jack, um, what's your question? Um, so my, I guess my question is about, we tend to talk about this transition and it's going to be a fast or it's going to be held up politically or whatever, but it seems to me there are two competing transitions. One is to the decentralised vision of the future and the other is to the, the very centralised you know, big pumped hydro, big transmission lines, you know, big hydrogen plants, etc. How do the panels see that panning out? I mean, it seems to me that there are reasons why either of those scenarios have an advantage, um, but there is also a possibility that we'll end up paying for both. Interesting question. David, do you want to have a go at that? Because um, the overs we have overspent in the past. Do we risk overspending again in the future? So, uh, so... Uh, I would say that distributed energy uh, uh, can't 
exist on its own at the moment. At the moment, um, if you were to go put in an off, entirely off-grid system, uh, I think every study ever done shows that right now you'd need a tremendous amount of storage, probably, or a backup diesel generator or something. So we need the grid. At the same time, at the same time. I think it, it, the consumer is the, is the competitor, uh, of, of, and so it provides competition in a way to the big utility space that wasn't there and sets limits on price. Um, uh, it is also true, I think, that it's hard to get costs down and, and completely rebuild your investment system in, like tear down all the old coal plants and rebuild them with the uh, technology that we can do now even though the costs are there, but you can't, it's hard to put all that investment in place uh, when demand is flat, which it is from in front of the meter perspective. So that's why it would be great if we had a very strong electric vehicle policy, for instance, that was, uh, it made demand, was making demand grow because there's no doubt it's easier to introduce new investment in a growing demand environment rather than in one where you've got competition. Uh, having said that, uh, I think that if we all agreed on what on a, on a vision for the future, uh, which and I think you know in most there is an emerging consensus about how it would work, that some of the costs are relatively affordable. Like for instance, put, strengthening transmission networks, the projects might look expensive, but individually as a, as a but as a component of people's bills, they're small. They're an enabling technology. You can look at. at uh, Europe's one example in Germany, but I always like to look at the ERCOT market in Texas. I mean, Texas has got a bigger market than the NEM, and that's just that they decided they did a build it and they will come approach. They worked out where the high wind zones were, and they just built transmission there, and bingo, they've got some of the lowest gas and oil prices in the world, and they've still got 20% wind in Texas now. And, and I think uh, the integrated system plan. Um, uh, which is unfortunately boring to the average journalist. It's much more fun to talk about carbon policy and what Tony Abbott said than to get into the nitty-gritty details of stage one, stage two and stage three of system strengthening. Uh, it just doesn't really play, play and, you know, even Chris Kenny in The Australian's got trouble writing about that because it's, it's dealing with real things rather than what he thinks. <laughs> that um, um, uh, offers a hope for the future and a way forward and perhaps something that we can agree on without having to, uh, and, and will open up these renewable zones. I have no doubt that transmission constraints right now are holding back uh, the whole industry and will continue to do so for two or three years. I think that was a problem that we could have identified three years ago and frankly we've been very slow to get onto it and it's a very important issue. Simon, you got something to add on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'd agree largely with David. You know, we're going to have a system of systems. So we're going to have lo lots of microgrid, uh, but when you also think, and, and, and all the opportunities that come from distributed generation and storage, but we are also going to have to address the broader, as uh, Darren Merler highlighted this morning in his presentation, the, the broader energy equation, not just the electricity equation. And when we think about that, that's an electric future for to solve that en broader energy challenge in terms of decarbonisation. And that includes, as he rightly pointed out this morning, exports. So if our response is only about dealing with existing demand for electricity, then you'd probably take the view that a distributed generation storage future is the way to go. But that's not the whole problem that we're trying to solve. We're also trying to solve decarbonisation of the economy more broadly. 
and that means expansion of electricity to replace other fuels, and that means a lot of large-scale, utility-scale generation with strong new transmission networks to tap into those reses, into those renewable energy zones, so that we can be manufacturing hydrogen for export. So we can be doing all the other things that we need to be doing as part of decarbonising the economy as a whole, not just thinking about the electricity sector as it is now. Uh, I, I meant to add to that, you know, in the end, 60% of electricity doesn't go to households, it goes to businesses. I'm, if there's one thing I really care about, it's things like keeping aluminium smelters going and keeping them competitive as we transition to renewable energy. And, you know, that means having a very efficient and effective in front of the meter system as well. Uh, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. Aluminium and steel spelters. And of course, in South Australia, Glenn, you've got Sanjeev Gupta, who's basically bought the Wyala Steelworks and, and, and the Associated Industry in New South Wales and Victoria on the basis that he can make it operate better by having green energy. To what extent is he changing the conversation in, in, in that state? Oh, there's a huge amount of investment up in the uh, northern regions of South Australia now, through Wyala, Port Augusta, even down to Port Pirie. Um, and and they've got plans to roll out uh, some larger scale solar farms across the country to other assets that Gupta owns. But so you're in, you're in a state though which is dominated by the Murdoch media um, and um, on talkback radio and stuff like that. When someone like Gupta comes along and says, well, I'm going to solarise this economy and this is basically, the, the, these are the big industries in this state and we're going to keep them going, we're going to keep them going with solar and storage. Does that message get through? I think so, to the, the population in general, uh, not necessarily to government. I think it's a lot harder to get that message through. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, a, a leader, uh, an indicator that solar storage works. I've done some seminars recently in rural South Australia and, and I used the, the Wyala Steelworks as a prime example of, of solar, large scale, small scale, it's a proven technology now. It's, it's, you know, everyone knows it works, it saves money, the investment's there, and Gupta's investing hundreds of millions of dollars on the fact that it's, it's, it's there, it works. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, follow the leader. So, so before we go back to questions from the audience, I, I want to ask Nigel, uh, household battery prices, uh, they seem to have been stuck in the doldrums for a couple of years, although when I go out here on the floor, people are saying that actually they are coming down, but I, I don't see it in the quotes. Uh, I, I guess I've got two questions. A am I reading what's actually happened so far correctly? And, and I, someone told me the other day that Tesla is actually putting their prices up again. Mm, that's uh, true. And LG batteries are putting their prices up. So um, do you think these uh, government schemes are going to give enough volume or what's causing that? And what's going to happen to household battery prices? Yeah, look, I think, uh, it's, uh, I think you're right on the money, David. It has been in the doldrums for a while, and, and I think it's the natural, uh, natural transition that we've seen. We saw it in the PV industry. We saw supply and demand uh, change dramatically um, uh, during, the, during the early years of PV, which drove price up and then drove price down. Um, and, uh, and, and I think I mentioned on Solar Insiders just the other week, actually, that uh, there, was, there was talk of, a, of uh, lithium prices uh, in China starting to come off the boil as well, uh, because we're, now there's been so much supply brought online that it's starting to, you know, the tension's starting to be taken out I, of the I own lithium shares, so we won't talk, we'll move on to the next <laughs> bit of that. <laughs> but the, the long and the short of it is, it, at the moment, it is still, it's about creating the market demand. So everybody, 
uh, all the manufacturers have for the last year or two been trying to create demand by artificially getting product into the market, just like any industry, uh, early industry does, at a, at a you know probably a, a loss-making price. And so what we've seen is they've held, they've allowed uh, scale to grow, which has brought their cost down. So now they're at the point where they may maybe making a little bit of a little bit of margin. But now what we're also starting to see is now we're adding more smarts in, right? The demands, the expectations of what those batteries can do, what Sonnen are doing down in South Australia. I know Glenn does a, a lot of Sonnen. They're doing some really, really clever stuff. We've got VPP requirements being thrown at us now. And so now everyone's scrambling, saying, cripes, we've got to add a VPP widget in here to make this work properly. Um, so I think, I th I think we'll, we'll definitely see that trend going, but going the right direction. But I suspect we've still got quite a way to go, remembering we're only a small part of a very, very large global market. Um, we've got a very, very long way to go before we actually have a material impact and force that price back down. We might see some corrections, but, I, but um, yeah, I think we're going to see it fairly stable for a while because we need this we need the smarts to come into it, and so we've got other technology costs that are coming in too. So, I, I agree with you, Nigel. Um, so why have Tesla just introduced last week a $2,000 price rise? Because they can, potentially. So as long as there's government money, subsidy involved, that artificially creates a market, these manufacturers, I believe, will take certain advantage of that and skin the cat while they can. Mm. Mm. You could well be right, yep. We have another question here. Yep, great. Uh, Peter Grant, um, after the war, there was... Uh, uh, Which one? The Which Second war? World War. My question's about consumer sovereignty and kind of the tragedy of the commons where uh, the consumer interest isn't uh, argued, and it's a favourite topic of mine. After the war, there was a big study by NATO in France um, looking at how to use the uh, prospective rollout of the nuclear plants and they came up with ripple control as an idea to move and shift consumer demand to meet the requirement of supply. That was rolled out in Australia. It's been unwound from the 90s to the 2000s and it's a matter of government regulation only that could bring it back now that the network companies are privatised. Ripple control works over the system. It's highly reliable and may well integrate with digital stuff, the um, uses of it would be obvious to the panel. How in a policy sense, I'd like to get thoughts, might we turn the tide on this? How do we convince politicians that consumer sovereignty might be enhanced by variable pricing, variable availability over the network using ripple control signal signals? So, so, so network pricing is, uh, is, there is no correct answer. Network is, uh, the, you know, cost reflective tariffs is a nonsense idea in networks. Their costs are essentially all fixed. The capital base is fixed when, 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 when we build the houses or apartments, that's when the wires go in. Uh, and, and in an era of flat demand, there's not that much substation. Uh, so there is no uh, obvious economic advantage to doing it. I think a lot of people believe in a future um, of peer-to-peer uh, -peer trading, but again, uh, there's absolutely no network ideology or methodology or way of thinking about how to do that. Um, um, so network pricing and incentives is complex. There are two government policies in South Australia and Queensland relating to when hot water heaters 
uh, are charged up. So in South Australia, it's at midnight. Uh, in, in a state, I, I'm not sure what the status of that actually is, but in a state where the lower solar in the day, it doesn't really seem to make sense to be charging your hot water heaters using gas in the middle of the night. Um, and, and in Queensland, I think there's also uh, the same ability to, to move things around. There's some obvious policy adjustments I can think of. Yeah, in, South, in, in Queensland, they're calling about the solar sponge because we're starting to see all the effect of the rooftop solar and the large-scale solar, which is being introduced, pushing down um, demand and also electricity prices in the middle of the day. I think in Queensland, they've got more flexibility about shifting that hot water load to the middle of the day. I think in South Australia, Glenn, you might know better than me, but I mean, it's a phenomenal amount. It's between about 200 or 300 megawatts or something like that. It as you say, happens around midnight each night. I think they've tried to move it, but they've just got old-fashioned meters and just um, yeah, the not too sure they can shift it. Yeah, the infrastructure is very old. There's not a lot of smart metering in South Australia. Um, so I think it's a, it will be a long process and a difficult process um, requiring capital investment. Mm, okay. We've got another question. Yeah, great. Um, just following on a little bit from that with the peer-to-peer uh, the -peer and, and so on, and I've had the, the pleasure of actually talking to some very, very good people at distributors lately who would very much like to do this, but they're a bit hamstrung. And, and it's, it really is one of the solutions to the problem that you were uh, talking about before, where people have been restricted with large installations or having export limitations because we don't have a way of incentivising a way uh, of, of soaking up that extra generation. Um, so the peer-to-peer -peer thing, the AEMC effectively knocked that on the head last year with a ruling um, that was on a proposal to subsidise or give a, uh, a, a subsidy to generators um, for generating local energy that didn't need the whole distribution network. And it's not surprising they knocked that on the head because they didn't really want to give another subsidy to solar owners. But if that were reframed as a a discount on, um, on network uh, tariffs for users who are using energy when it's cheap, when it's available, when there's an excess of it, would that have a better chance of getting it through? And if not, what's another way, what are the best tactics um, for actually getting to the AMC and allowing, getting them to allow the distributors to actually harness this potential solution to the problem that we face? Look, I, I'm very critical from time to time of the AEMC, but uh, at the same time, uh, because I think it has been slow to embrace uh, modern technology and has done as much as anything to hold it back in, in, in the past, and I kind of believe that uh, if it, you know, in Stalin's idea, if the current general's not winning the war, just to keep with the war analogy, you bloody well shoot the guy and just put someone else in, you know, until until someone gets lucky and actually ends up winning. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably is just luck. Uh, but so I, I actually have some sympathy for the AEMC in some ways. They've got so many complex rule changes that probably we shouldn't talk about too much in this seminar because they get into detail that. I don't think too many of us, including me, are, are really fully across. I mean, I think if I was to think about the five-minute settlement rule, for instance, that's going to mean fantastic changes for everyone in the market in a couple of years' time. So I, I'm just going to park that one to one side. I'm going to jump in because, you know, I went and grabbed a hot dog before. And I, there's a point to this. I, I, I sat down. There was a gentleman out there. <laughs> Uh, sitting at a table, I said, do you mind if I sit with you? And he said, no, 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 not at all, please, please do. Uh, he said, I'm sorry, I'm being rude, I'll put my phone down. I was just looking at a notification that I got about something that's going on on my home energy system. And I said, get out of town. Where, where, it wasn't where? Malcolm Turnbull, was it? 
it was a gentleman from Sydney, and uh, he's down here at the conference, and he, lo and behold, he happened to have the technology from Solar Analytics that had notify him, notified him that there was an opportunity for him to shift his load. And he said, oh, I just saw the email, and here you are sitting here talking to me. What a wonderful technology. This is not rocket science. It really is not rocket science. There's a guy sitting out there in this hall who just got notified that he could save some money, right? He, he had an immediate trigger. And, and, and in my own experience a few years ago, I volunteered to go into the time of use tariff. I can tell you, every time I knew that the energy price was going up to 50 or 60 cents a kilowatt hour, I made a very, very conscious decision to yell at my wife and tell her to stop fly mowing. Okay, because that was a <laughs> hell of an expensive way to mow the lawn. And there's another expensive. time that she can do I, it. I bet that was very successful yelling at your wife. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a separate issue. But the point is, there are, there are so many simple bits of low-hanging fruit out here that we could be using. And I'll, I'll take another point. The, the time of use, that 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. is wrong. It is wrong. The, time, the peak period of demand needs to catch up. And I'd be interested in your opinion, David, on this. But you know, the time of peak period now, we're, we've got the duck curve in half the states in Australia, right? So you know, that time, that peak time really needs to be shift, shifted. And, and I know from the gentleman I met over lunch and from my experience with my wife and the Flymo that there are very, very simple signals that will, will allow people to shift. Is that, is that 2 to 8 p.m. period still relevant in today's age? Well, uh, uh, that is actually when peak load actually still occurs on the system as far as I, not maybe not 2 to 8 p.m., but certainly it occurs in, the, in say, 6 to 8 p.m., depending on whether, whether daylight savings go in. And right. for, th for those who are interested in tiny little technical details, when you actually look at the data, it's all synchronised to Queensland time, which doesn't have daylight saving. Uh, and, and puts me in mind of the best thing I heard this morning from, um, from, from in the plenary centre I was this idea that you could have a DC link to West Australia and use their three hour physical time difference to, to shift solar back. I mean, that's not the worst idea, stupidest idea on the face of it I've, I've ever heard of. And you know, the technology for doing all these things advances incredibly. Again, uh, for those that look beyond Australia and have been seeing what's happening in China and been following the coal swarm uh, technology which has been monitoring, they get a day, they, you can now get a daily satellite printout of what every coal plant in China is at, or anywhere else in the world is actually doing day by day. If you, uh, and there are organisations that are dedicated to keeping this going and to monitoring that progress. So technology is advancing and, and, and can be a fantastic enabler and facilitator and there are lots of people working on very smart technology. Australia is a leader in this, you know, and so in, in, in our in, in rooftop solar, Australia is a world leader. Hmm. And everyone in the industry should be happy with that and working like crazy to make sure we stay there. We've got another question down here. So with the inevitable death of coal at the Latrobe Valley, um, I was wondering if anyone had any updates of the Star of the South project the offshore wind off the coast that was yeah, so big news late last year. Yeah, very big news. I mean, that, that is a very big project. It's, I think, a two gigawatt project potentially when fully developed. Um, it's got a remarkable wind resource um, that is very complementary to the onshore wind generation fleet in Victoria. So at times when it's not windy, onshore, it's still windy offshore, so it's got a really good complementarity in terms of 
performance of the Victorian NEM region. Um, the interesting thing about Star of the South is that it is testing all the regulatory barriers around development of offshore wind in Australia. We haven't done it before. The regulatory systems aren't designed to deal with, for example, prospecting offshore for a wind resource and doing the geotechnical, uh, for example, the geotechnical investigations into the seafloor and so on. If you wanted to build an oil rig, no problem. But if you want to do it for an offshore wind farm, uh, we've got to somehow work out how the regulations that work for offshore oil rigs are applied to a wind farm. So you need, uh, at the moment, they need to work through their regulatory approvals from both the Commonwealth Government and the Victorian Government because to make matters more complex, there are Victorian waters and there are Commonwealth waters in the, uh, uh, off the coast of Gippsland. So you need uh, approval from both. The state and the Commonwealth are collaborating, I think, in a very good way to streamline that as much as possible. But at the end of the day, there's still fundamentally a need for a Commonwealth approval to prospect on the seafloor. Uh, and once that is granted, and as far, last time I heard it had not been granted, but it appears to have been imminent for a while, but hopefully it will be forthcoming very soon, uh, then uh, they will be able to proceed with what will be a series of a number of years' worth of prospecting and due, due diligence that they need to do before they could move forward with development. But it is a very exciting project. They've indicated that their development timeframe was to see development in the mid-2020s, so it was quite a long lead time. That may be accelerated. I think certainly their investors would be keen to accelerate it. Um, and the market may very well uh, welcome that, uh, but those timeframes are still a little uncertain because of some of these regulatory issues. The other big thing to mention with that project is the, um, the potential for offshore wind in terms of job generation. During construction, is about two, I think, a, a, a workforce of about 2,000, uh, and, dur and during operations, a permanent workforce of about 200. So it's a very significant employment generator, particularly for the Latrobe Valley Gippsland area. Uh, and that's uh, certainly been a very strong focus for organisations like the Latrobe Valley Authority uh, and the state government as they look at facilitating the transition in that region. Got maybe one more time for one more question over here. Uh, Phil Woods from the Sunshine Coast Council. Um, I've been coming to this conference now for 10 years. In 2008, we just had the global financial crisis. The feed-in tariffs had just come in. Five years after that, the Abbott government came in. Everyone was freaking out about all the solar farmers being caned. Rah, rah. We're now today, 2018. I would like to hear from the panel what they think will be happening in 2023, in five years' time, and in 10 years' time. And just, just before we get that, it's a fantastic question. It goes to the question I was going to ask at the end there too. And uh, just congratulations to the Sun Sunshine Coast Council actually for getting yeah. a 15 megawatt solar farm up and yeah. um, becoming the first council to own their own solar thing. So well done, guys. Yeah. yeah. One of the first. I think Newcastle's got one as well. We followed in ACT's footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, okay, five or ten years. I'm going to start with, I'm going to go last on this one. What do you want everyone else has got to say? So, uh, I'll, I'll start first because, and, and we've talked about this before, but every time you look at a forecast, and I do, I've done a lot of forecasting on this industry in the past, 
whenever we do forecasts, we're almost always low. So, um, you know, one thing that we can be assured of is that any forecast for the transition is more than likely going to happen faster than we all currently think. And the further out you go, the, the, the further we divest from that curve. So, um, uh, you know, there is no sign of residential solar slowing up. There's just no sign at all. Uh, commercial solar is largely untapped in a rooftop sense. There is just, you know, gigawatts of potential and businesses large and small. We had a contingent of very, very large businesses visiting our stand just over the course of today telling us about the, the, the wonderful examples of savings that they're getting and they're under enormous pressure and there's no sign of electricity prices going down. So, that, you know, there's just, you know, all, all, all that you can see ahead really in the residential and the commercial space is, is increases. The large-scale guys are having a much larger, larger time of it, however. Um, you know, there's a great boom going on at the moment, but that's not going to remain necessarily the case in the absence of uh, the RET. I suspect that, uh, you know, over the next five years, we may see a little, bit of a, a little bit of a stumble before the industry can then just stand on its own two feet and then the transition will just take off and we'll be on our way. That's, that's my guess. Glenn? Yep. I agree um, with Nigel there. I see no slowing down of uh, residential PV and commercial. If we look at the stats, um, uh, roughly across Australia, there's only about 30% penetration of residential solar. So people say to me, oh, you know, residential's all, all done. We're not even halfway. So there's five, 10 years or more left in that. Um, the, the rental market has been untouched. There's hundreds of thousands of rental properties out there that none of them have solar on it. Uh, sooner or later, there's going to be a model that's put together, whether it be by a government incentive or smart business operators that see that untapped market, that there'll be a drive to put solar on residential uh, rental property. And the commercial market, is, as Nigel said, is, is largely untouched. Um, I think what we will be talking about, and it's happening now already, is um, the networks being able to cope with all the PV going to grid. We're seeing voltage issues now on the networks, um, which is causing lots of problems with uh, even just residential solar, being able to turn solar systems on. Uh, you know, 255, 260 volts going to people's homes, potentially damaging their, their equipment at home. Um, their you know, nice new $5,000 flat screen TV blowing up at a minute's notice. <laughs> um, I think that'll be a big issue moving forward. But you know, you know I'm, I'm going to jump in there because you just reminded me, I was chatting to someone only an hour or so ago from WA, talking about the export limits and the way that WA is handling it. They've got a slightly different approach. They're taking the volt watt response rather than just slapping contactors on and throwing people off the network if they're exporting, they're doing some more intelligent stuff. And the guy I was chatting to said, it's pretty interesting what, uh, what a couple of the network guys are doing over there. And there's a lot of solar going on these new home uh, areas where they've got massive construction of new homes. And he said, as a matter of fact, I'm off tomorrow to switch on a system we've just installed because the, the network company said, well, there's all these new homes. They've all got solar built into them. Um, we've got some, some voltage problems. We kind of saw it happening, but geez, we're just going to go and throw a 400 kilowatt hour battery on and be done with it. And we're just going to hide it in the bushes. We're not going to tell anyone. And he said, it's literally <laughs> hidden in the park in the middle of this new development. They're not making a big deal about it. Um, and, and so what that shows me in terms of going back to your question about the future, the networks are starting to realise, right? There are intelligent technological responses. 
whether it's Volt Watt or whether it's hiding a battery somewhere to solve a technological problem, we're going to see more of that as well. I went to a Sorry. seminar and all those networks, I'm going to have, uh, that all the networks employ people called future technologists or something like that, and they all wander around with a label saying, you're a future technologist. That's uh, <laughs> not necessarily a label I'd want to be wearing, but that, they, the networks do get it to that extent. Simon. <laughs> so I think uh, by the end of next decade, well and truly at 50% renewables uh, nationally uh, in the electricity sector without a doubt, uh, may even be well before that, but my, my read by towards the end of next decade, 50% renewables. The really big change will be uh, the emergence of electric vehicles, and I think they're coming at us hard and fast. Um, in the next couple of years, we're really going to see a very significant shift. Governments are going to move even more actively into that space. They are going to address the issues around tariff tariffs in terms of imports, they are going to be incentivising charging just today. We had the Victorian Minister announcing support for EV charging uh, here in Victoria. So we're dramatically going to see that. We're going to see things like, um, particularly in public transport fleets, governments are going to switch very quickly, I think, to electric buses in their own public transport fleets because, you know, you get a 30% operating cost saving. Um, these are expensive networks where there is a lot of demand that has to be addressed in terms of augmentation of public transport in all of our big congested cities. So that's going to be critically important. Uh, in the short term, um, we may see, I think, some consolidation of the large utility scale sector. Uh, I think we will see uh, some of the smaller prospective businesses, the early stage developers moving out and a bit of consolidation uh, with, with a, a smaller number of the really big utility scale developers, I think that's highly likely as well, partly for reasons around the rent. Um, the other big question, of course, is once we get past our caretaker energy minister at the moment, is what's going to be the situation uh, in 1919, uh, sorry, 2019 through to 2021, uh, and what is going to be the policy setting there? Are we going to have a neg? Uh, are we going to have some direct contracting uh, on the part of the federal government? or are we going to have states working more collaboratively with each other to support and provide offtake in the absence of ongoing policy uncertainty at a national level? I think that's the really interesting space to watch in the next couple of years. David. Well, I just like to, uh, I, I agree with everything that uh, my fellow panellists have, have said. Uh, I'd just like to draw attention to some of the headwinds. Uh, being an analyst, you always sort of see the things that can go wrong. The first, I would point to the transmission and easements. It takes an awfully long time to get transmission done and it's no good having your new solar farm being built in a year if you can't connect it for, for three years. So, so that certainly has to be fixed. Uh, I, I would still point to the fact that there are risks in the system right now if we have a hot summer. We still only have like seven or eight, uh, depending on how you're counting, coal generators running running effectively the whole of the east coast, uh, uh, whole of the NEM except for Queensland and uh, a breakdown in one or two of those. I would observe that coal and gas prices are extremely high the, uh, uh, and yet at the same time we can't get the price signal to get any of this new renewable firming technology in place so there's no doubt that wind and solar are cheap. The more solar that's put on the market, the less profitable the next unit of solar becomes because uh, under the current system of entirely market-based, uh, uh, you're, you're essentially creating lower revenue for yourself and everyone else. 
So there are going to be issues of lower returns available for new solar developers that, that will have to be dealt with as well. So uh, I, I agree that we will be at 50%. We bloody will have to be uh, by 2030. Uh, I would not ignore international policy. What happens in China, I keep referring to it, it's incredibly important because if China decided to change what it does about coal, coal prices internationally could collapse. All of a sudden that could make thermal electricity prices very low in the East Coast again, and then you wouldn't, you'd still have trouble getting your new wind and solar plants built. So uh, I, I would hope, if I want, wished for one thing over the next 10 years, it would be uh, some consensus like we all want uh, on policy uh, that would point us to a way to getting towards 50% renewables uh, or something like that in a nice, steady, measured and managed way. I do think that governments can assist in this transition with, with planning and with policies uh, that, that are fair to all uh, and, and get us down that triumvirate of uh, uh, reliability. That's the first goal. We have to have the lights on. Uh, uh, Decarbonisation so our kids and grandkids and everyone else has a future and price. I personally would rather have higher prices for the sake of reliability and decarbonisation. Well done. And um, look, I'm looking at the future. That's probably a good way to sort of tail off um, this discussion here. Um, thanks for being here um, and assisting with this live podcast. Thanks to our sponsors once again, Solaray Energy, Watchers, Solar Analytics and PV Cell. And if you guys can put your hands together to thank our, our panel today, uh, David Leach, Simon Corbell, Glenn Morelli and Nigel Morris. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.